Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. But first, we're going to chat with the co-writer of the Oscar-nominated Tom Hardy, Nick Nolte, Joel Edgerton film, Warrior, a screenwriter who has earned a WGA nomination for his work on HBO's Entourage, has been an instructor at UCLA's Extension Writers Program and who's worked on numerous prominent comic book and video game titles for companies like DC, uh, Sega, EA, and on titles such as The Watchdog, Full Auto 2, and Dead Space. He's currently working on the big-budget reboot of The Crow for Relativity and teaching on Sundance Channel's series Dream School. He started his career as an actor, though, with various roles on TV shows like Beverly Hills 90210 and Seventh Heaven and films like Red Dragon. We welcome to the show, Mr. Cliff Dorfman. Thanks for joining us today, Cliff. Jesus, Kevin. I, I'm going to bring you out with me at night. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best fucking introduction I've ever had in my life. Oh, well, cool. Uh, you definitely... De- I mean, it's all true. It's You definitely deserve. Thanks for Thank coming you, on. Thank you, sir. No. Very um, nice to be here. I appreciate it. Um, we, we like to first start off the interviews with your background. How did you get started in the industry? I know you started off as an actor and then transitioned to screenwriting. And how did you make that transition? But I mean, I guess, first and foremost, how did you get your start in the business and and what inspired it? I mean, I was um, always in the arts. Since I'm four years old, I started playing the piano by myself. And by eight or nine, I was playing Mozart. And 12, I was playing Rachmaninoff. I was trained by, you know, Juilliard professors up until, you know, I was about 17. I was in sort of every specialized art program, like PACE program in the arts for creative enrichment. So half my day was arts. The other half was academics. Uh, so I, I was constantly sort of surrounded by it. And I knew, luckily, you know, I had the blessing of knowing at a very early age, I, I was an artist. Now, again, what that road ends up being is a whole different ballgame, but, you know, it was something that was never really a question. Uh, as far as I was in every talent show, I was, you know, singing and playing and in bands and acting in school plays. And, you know, there was never really, it wasn't like, oh, Cliff ended up in Hollywood? Shocker. It was, that was, that was always what I was going to do. Now, you know, so as soon as I was old enough, I immediately went to HP Studios in in Manhattan and I started training with Bill Hickey and then Herbert Berghoff and then Uta Hagen and I went to the neighborhood playhouse and I got to actually be taught by Sandy Meisner before he passed and it, wow. it you know yeah it was you know I studied with some arguably not even arguably what I, I think are some of the best acting coaches then when I came to LA Ivana Chubbuck and what they all taught me really well was that I kind of sucked as an actor <laughs> You know, I got some work and, you know, thank God. But what ultimately ended up happening is in the, you know, 10 plus years of acting, I probably made more in the first year of professional writing than I made in those 10 years Mm. combined. So I guess it was uh, not a tough transition for you then. But how did you make that transition? I mean, what made you say, you know what, acting is not my thing, writing is my thing. And then what actually, how did the transition take place for you? Uh, Well, first of all, you know, I still don't really like to say writing's my thing because I, I it's so torturous. <laughs> and I never wanted to write. Um, and I'll tell you, there's two things that made the transition for me. Uh, Jonathan Silverman, who's mm-hmm. one of my closest friends, I don't know if you know him, he's an actor, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. amazing, but he's memoirs and Weekend at Bernie's, and yeah. he's been a friend and, and someone who's, you know, sort of given me an entree into the business since I got here. And... Uh, and then the other person is Woody Harrelson, though he doesn't know it. 
Woody opened a, an oxygen bar uh, in that space where I think Red Rock is now on Sunset. And I was like, oh, you know, this is like, I don't know, 13 years ago. And you know, I'm, I'm guesstimating. And I, I was like, oh, that sounds so fucking cool. Woody Harrelson's Oxygen Bar. And I went there and, and I didn't realize that, you know, like pure oxygen, you know, like I went there at like nine o'clock at night and, I, you know, it keeps you up for like a day. And I had no idea. And I had this story in my mind and I, I, I got home and, and my wife at the time was, you know, she was sleeping and I was like, oh, I went upstairs to the lost space and I just started writing. And I literally wrote all night and I wrote this idea. It was like an outline or a treatment. I didn't know because I had no formal training. Uh, it was just a, you know, I spewed it. And I, I called it Murder, Inc. And it was based on my experiences in the business, plus my friends back home, some of them being gangsters and what have you. And, and I wrote this thing and I, in the morning I emailed it to Johnny Silverman and Johnny read it like right away. He's like, this is one of the best things I've ever read. And I'm like, really? And he gave it to Erwin Moore who at the time was at William Morris and Johnny's agent and Irwin loved it. And he's like, well, you should write it as a, as a movie, you know, again, no money, but Johnny had introduced me to Bob Saget and I got together with Bob and we wrote the script and then Bob was going to direct it. And like most movies, they don't get made. Uh, but at the same time, then my, my ex-wife, my wife at the time, Drew was nannying and, and acting also in his movies for this guy, Jack Bender, who now, who he peed and directed lost. And, but at the time he was, doing the Sopranos and what have you in different shows. And he had some ideas and he asked me, you know, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? And we started writing together and we wrote two scripts and then they went to his agents at the time. So slowly agents and people started seeing my work and I was working with people that were above my station, whereas in acting that was never happening. <laughs> and the whole time, you know, I was working with Doug Ellen and came out here with him, you know, basically together. I think he came out a year or six months before me. And then I got out there and he let me stay at his place on um, broadcast. And we've been friends since we're five years old, since mm. kindergarten. And uh, we were, you know, I produced his first short film. I uh, introduced him to David Schwimmer that he went on to do, you know, many collaborations with and is still close friends with. But it is pre-friends. And again, Johnny Silverman introduced me to David. It's, it's a very small circle. And, and ultimately, it, it built up to, you know, Doug, working with Doug for long enough and, and realizing that I'm, you know, <laughs> a pretty shitty actor. And <laughs> in writing, everything keeps coming so much easier. And then Doug says, well, you know, I basically was on the whole first season of Entourage and, you know, participated and helped out. I wasn't a WGA member. I was just there every day. I wasn't getting paid, but Doug would let me be there. And I would add story ideas and I would, you know, help Doug in any way I could. And then he came to me and offered me the, you know, had to like go up to HBO and get people on my team and gave me the staff writing position uh, on Entourage, which led to the WGA award. Now, again, I don't even know if I could ever work on a show again because I was a staff writer and I, I didn't understand levels. Uh -huh. So, you know, I was a staff writer, but I was acting because of Doug and Lev and, you know, giving me this sort of wide berth. Uh, I was acting as a producer. I was putting together, you know, deals with them for Comic-Con to use the licensing. I was, you know, I was working in every facet of the show, which as a staff writer, I guess you never get to do, but I would never know that. So, you know, after I got out and they're like, well, you were a low level writer. I'm like, don't ever fucking call me low level or anything <laughs> again. I'm like, you know, or I'm, I swear to God, I'm going to fire you. My agent at the time. Well, I ultimately ended up firing. And <laughs> I, you know, and then I, you know, upon uh, departing from Entourage, 
it was like immediately Hollywood Reporter had me as one of the top 10 write, young writers to watch. And I was like, okay, so that's no pressure. And then <laughs> I got, you know, I'd written a spec script that Paramount ended up taking with Gavin O'Connor at the time. They gave me a blind deal and we sold the show to Mini Driver and then we just kept on going, you know, with Mini Driver to CBS and Nina Tassel. And we just sort of kept going and Gavin and I sort of culminated with Warrior, you know, years later. Mm -hmm. So at this point, when you're on Entourage and developing these projects, had you ever taken a screenwriting class or uh, read a screenwriting book or anything? Or is this all on the job training for you? Well, no, I mean, I, I still haven't read a wow. book or, or taken a class. I refuse to. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I feel like, you know, first of all, I'm a fan of film and television. You know, I'm a consumer mm -hmm. of it. And I inundate myself with it. I, I understand structure inherently for some reason. And again, I always feel like you can't teach anybody to write. You know, you either have a voice or you don't. You can teach somebody structure, but, you know, structure, if you're at all intelligent, is something you could pretty easily just watch a few movies and figure out the structure you want to do. If you watch enough movies, you'll see all the structures. You know, you watch enough shows, you'll see all the structures. There's not that many. Right. It worked for Tarantino. You know, and, and, well, yeah. I mean, look, and, and Tarantino, again, he created his own structure, which now everybody tries to duplicate, <laughs> but I still haven't seen anybody really do what he did with Pulp Fiction. No, absolutely. Does being a former actor... Do you think that makes you a better writer? I mean, did you take anything away from your acting days and sort of apply it to your screenwriting? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, I know what actors, or at least I believe I know. I don't really know anything. Let's <laughs> just be clear. But I, I, I know that I know nothing. That being said, I believe that I am uh, given an awareness from my acting of what actors are looking for when they're reading a script. Because I think a lot of times, you know, writers are focused on the sale or the production level of it. but Sometimes you have to just be focused on the read because the read is what's going to get you the sale and going to get you the production, you know, and you got to have a read for executives and you got to have a read for actors. And it's, it's, it's sort of trying to find the split between the two where the executives can wrap their brain around it, but it's just esoteric enough or heady enough and has enough business or description to make an actor go, Ooh, I could really sink my teeth into this. And to go back to your previous question, I, I never, you know, took a class or read a book. But what I did do was I read a lot of scripts. And I remember reading Oliver Stone's draft for Scarface, one of his original drafts, and he, he wrote in there, you know, Tony Montana, his eyes dart around the room, and then he did a parenthetical of, you know, this is something that he'll do throughout the movie. And it, it just stuck with me in a way that I was like, oh, so he's telling us business of this character, and what does that mean about the character, and why does that work so well? And it always stayed with me. And then I started... You know, being a writer, you're, you're somewhat of a sociologist and you're somewhat of a psychologist. And, you know, in the sociological aspect, you start observing human behavior. You know, so I'll be out with a girl and I'll notice every time she's nervous, she's going to stick her thumbs in between her, wrap her fists around her thumbs. You know, so I'll give that to a character. You know, nothing is sacred, by the way. That's the <laughs> other thing. If you're with me, you post something on my social media, I, if you do it, I'm going to take it if I like it. I think that's the case with a lot of writers. Um, yeah, I'm just very open and uh, uh, clear about it. Right. <laughs> Hang like, around me. I'm it's all fair it. game. Yes, exactly. Anything you say, any story you tell, you know, whereas people who really know me, you're like, you can't use that. <laughs> right off the bat. Right off the bat. I'm going to tell right, you something. I'll be like, all right. 
Or they'll tell me a great story and they'll see the look in my eye and right. they'll be like, oh, no, you can't use that. That's mine. <laughs> I'll be like, all right. Then, look, if they say that, I will never use it. That's funny. I'm not sure if I'm answering your questions, but uh, I know I'm talking a lot. No, you're doing a great job answering the questions. <laughs> um, and actually, yes, I don't need any validation. No, that's funny. No, whatsoever. It, it, Am I doing well? Am I doing well, Kevin? Yeah, that's an actor thing, right? They all need <laughs> yeah, feedback. I think it is. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, though, because you... need feedback. It's so funny. You had said that uh, you, know that you, you know that you know nothing. And actually, I yes. think it was Confucius said that, that, that true wisdom comes in knowing that you know nothing. Or maybe I heard that from Bill and Ted. I'm not 100% sure, but... Um, I'm sure I stole it from Confucius or whoever <laughs> I read it from, but I, it must have resonated enough to make it my own. Yeah, that's funny. Um, now, you you said that you don't think that a writer can be taught to write. You either have that unique voice or you don't. How can a writer determine that he or she has that voice, that writer's voice or not? That's a really, really good question. Um you know, I don't know. That's that might be one of the better questions I've ever been asked because I don't know that I have an answer for it. <laughs> I, I no, really. I mean, that's a damn good question, Kevin. How does a writer know if he or she has that voice? I, I think the best answer I could give instinctually is I want to say, you know, mm-hmm. you really do. You just you, you you know you have a certain way of expressing what it is that you have to say, you, you, you don't have this you know, choice. When I wrote that first outline, I had to spew out this stuff. It was overwhelming. I didn't even realize how much I had to get it out. And I think that is part of it. And I think the other part of it is voices can be defined differently with different people. You know, you look at David Ayers, you know, and, and the first time you read Training Day, you're like, I'm, this guy speaks a different fucking language. This is brilliant. I've never, you know, this is fresh. It pops off the page. You know, so there's that type of voice. There's the Quentin type of voice where they're, you know, talking about ideas and things that we've all seen, but he's got a unique way of describing what a pilot is or how to tell a joke or, you know, putting a graphic on a screen of a square as she makes the, the sign because that's in the script. You know, these things are not random or arbitrary. So I think when you have a fresh way of looking at a very old I even remember like Zach Braff from Garden State. It was the way that uh, Natalie Portman talked about like her gerbil or her hamster dying or something when they're in the garden. And it was a very common scene that he just took and, you know, turned on a tear. And I think those are the things where you have a, a very common idea or a very common theme or scene and you find this completely new, fresh or innovative way to tell it whether it's fucking with the structure, whether it's the dialogue, whether it's all of those things combined. That, that's probably the best I could say. Mm-hmm. And also, you know what? I, I will add an addendum is listen to what other people say. You know, because like let other people read your work. You kind of have to. Because if you're not good at getting critiqued and you're not good at filtering what the good stuff is and, you know, you know the way I'll say you separate the notes from like the make it better notes – actually, you know, good notes that, oh, and by the way, here's an aside, anything that really pisses you off, like really gets you angry, is probably a good note. <laughs> so, yeah, there you go. So when I say listen to people, I mean, you know, because people will tell you about your voice, you know, and, and if you get enough feedback, you'll realize like, oh, that's my voice. I do have a voice. If, if you're not sure. Mm-hmm. What you had said just a second ago, also, I think is some of the, the best advice in terms of the rewriting process that t- two of the most important things is being able to take 
criticism of your work and being able to filter out what actually does make your script better and what doesn't. Because, you know, people will throw a billion different things, their own opinions at you, but filtering out what, hey, this actually does make my story better and this doesn't, this is just, you know, extraneous. I don't think this would help at all. Uh, this chain. Oh, well, those are the worst, those notes. You know, right. Kevin, where you're like, you know, like, I don't know, just make it better. Right. And you're like, yeah, that doesn't really fucking help me at all. You know, but like, I have a pilot um, that I'm working on with, uh, with you know, Galen Hurd and, and UCP, and I, you know, Doug is my worst critic, and, you know, because he does not hold back at all, and he's very smart. And he says, you know, and I'm, you know, very fortunate we have each other in our lives. And, you know, um, we read a lot of each other's stuff. And, and I'm always a little more hesitant to give him my stuff because I know, you know, I know. And he's usually right. And I gave him this pilot before I handed it in finally and just to over, you know, to give it an overview. And he read it and it was like, you were getting this huge fight because he's telling me I have too much description and screaming. I'm like, you never fucking, you know, saying, you don't like my writing. And like, I'm taking it all personal. And then I'm like, all right, you're right. There's too much description. He's like, yeah, you're hiding. It's like you're almost trying to hide your pilot. And like I went back through it and I did this whole pass, yanking out all this extraneous description. And the truth is it read a thousand percent better. It was received a thousand percent better. And it was like, and it started with, I'm talking like that. We were screaming at each other. But at the end of the day, he was right. And I was like, you know what? He's fucking right. This makes it better. And I had to go back and like my kids in my room watching like Austin and Allie or something. And I'm like, <laughs> he's like, I'm like, dad just got to just, dad's just doing some work. He's like, were you just yelling at Doug? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, he was yelling at me. He's like, you said he doesn't support you in your writing. He's like, no, he's being very supportive. I go, he was actually right. Doug just helped you dad a lot. Now go watch Austin and Allie. <laughs> well, I spend the next two hours ripping out fucking details and description i thought you're gonna say you're ripping off blinds and tearing up the wall paper no well, you know metaphorically maybe yeah. but no it's uh yeah so so that's you know there you go there's that now i know you you've taught at the ucla writers extension program ucla extension writers program um, and i want to touch yeah. on some of the elements that you uh, explored in your classes I know, first, how do you prepare a pitch and how does it differ between film and TV projects? So you're asking me that? Yeah. Like, how do I prepare a pitch or how did I, well, I mean, I guess it's really one and the same because how I prepare a pitch is how I tried to teach the kids who are in my class how to prepare a pitch. You know, and I think the first thing is realizing the separation between the world and your characters. You know, so the world is a backdrop. So, okay, you could use Sopranos, for example. Everybody doesn't, you know, there's no universality to the mob, to the mafia, to organized crime. But, you know, there is universality to Davis Chase's fucked up relationship with his mom, which is really what Tony Soprano's character is all about. The backdrop being the mob is the same as the backdrop being IBM. Everybody can relate to having to go away on a business trip, promising your daughter you're not going to do any business while you're taking her for this big college interview, and yet you have to go take a quick meeting and you sneak it in. Tony's meeting was just having to whack somebody. Right. You know, so, so it's understanding the difference between your world, your characters, and then the themes you want to explore within those two places. So that's the first thing I say is, you know, if you don't have that separated, you have really nothing. You know, because everybody's got what they think is a great idea, but it usually is just the world. Like, oh, what if it takes place in this, you know, in this, you know, it's all inside a car. Or, you know, they have these ideas. It's like, all right, great. So what happens? What's the engine of the show? And that's the next thing you start to talk about is what's the drive of the engine of the show week to week. 
Is it episodic? Is it serialized? You know, are we following one character? Is it a two or three hand or ensemble piece? Like, you know, a gossip girl or the OC or, you know, how are you structuring this show? So yes, you know, using the OC, you have the OC as a backdrop, this kind of rich, affluent, you know, rich man, poor man thing, bringing the poor kid into the rich family. That's a great world. What are these characters? This kid without a dad and, and finding a dad in Peter Gallagher and, and so on and so forth. You know, and then saying now we're going to follow, you know, this kid, this poor kid, and he's our audience. And it's through the looking glass that we're seeing this opulent world. And, you know, now you start to be able to build what your show is. And what's going to drive that every week? Well, it's Romeo and Juliet. It's, you know, because nothing hasn't been explored. It's just how are you going to explore it? So, so once you start fleshing out those ideas, and you say, okay, so the themes I want to go through are, you know, opulence and secrets and family and love. Let's just say, I'm being very broad. But, okay, so now you know that. So now let's try to further define that. And then you start getting into the details of what each one of those themes is. So your world, your characters, your themes, the engine. Okay, now you're starting to see how a show develops. Okay, how does a writer select the best representation for them? What should a screenwriter be looking for in an agent or manager? I mean, when you're starting out, just, you know, someone who wants to handle you. You know, I mean, I had a different road because I, I went from never writing and not being in the WGA to being brought on to Entourage. And at the time, you know, it wasn't, you know, the first season hadn't even been nominated for anything yet. It had barely aired. You know, we were on the second season. So it, it was just in its inception. So I didn't really even know what I was getting brought into at the time. I, I thought it was great. You know, and I was working with Larry Charles and, and Doug and Lev and, you know, really amazing people. And, uh, but I didn't realize, so I have a different trajectory because, you know, I kind of got on entourage and then, you know, Doug called me, he's like, you want to go be with CAA? You know, I was like, okay. So I, I can't say in the beginning, you know, if I was saying, okay, well, I'm struggling and I, I you know, in other words, I struggled for a long time. And I was like, struggling and not going from not being a professional writer to being on entourage, which is, you know, do to the fact that I paid dues for 15 years and all these other aspects and worked with Doug and all these people for so long, but still it was an overnight thing after, you know, 12, 14 years. So it was a little different. If I was trying to write all that time and struggling for a person I wanted to represent me, I would pretty much have taken anybody who can get my stuff in front of people. Because the biggest hurdle you face as, as a, a writer that nobody knows is unsolicited material. They won't accept it. Agencies don't accept it. You know, so, so it's a very hard thing to make that first jump. So anyone that's going to get your material to be, you know, solicited, per se, is someone that you want. Then when you start developing who you are as a writer, and that goes back to even the class that I taught, which was not how to write, but how to, you know, build your brand as a writer. And that, I think, is the most important thing. When you start to realize what your brand is. You know, if you're great at, you know, if you're a girl writer and you write about girl gangsters or you, you know, why do they go to you instead of the, you know, plethora of other writers that are out there to write this piece? Why does this have your name all over it? Once you start to figure that out, then you really start to figure out what your temperament is as an artist. And you kind of got to combine both those things and say, who can put up with me? <laughs> now, maybe I'm just speaking of myself, but it really is true. You know, uh, now I'm somewhat uh, volatile and, and, you know, loud and, and, and can be aggressive. And, and, you know, 
uh, I have a lot of tattoos and I, you know, I, I'm a guy who is, um, somewhat polarizing and I know that I need a certain type of person. Now my agent now, I went after, uh, I fired CAA and they laughed at me and I'm like, you see, this is why I'm firing you because you think it's funny that I'm firing you because they were way too big for me to be there. You know, it was just one of those things that happened because of entourage. And I went without an agent for, I don't know, six, seven years. And I just had my lawyer and then I had a couple of different managers. And one of the managers I had, I'm actually with again, as you know, who you know is George. He was mm-hmm. over at Foresight where he started his own company. And I was with him and Michael and Jeremy over there. And then years later, because George, you know, got my temperament and we can fucking go at it and have huge fights. And then, you know, he'll yell at me. Well, you should just find someone else to represent you. And I'll be like, stop being a fucking drama queen. And, you know, (laughs) then later on, we're like, all right, you know, like, cool. Like, what's up? And I know that I can do that with him. So that's why he's still my manager. And that's why he hasn't dropped me as a client with, you know, the seven year lapse in agent thing. I finally, Gary Oldman's manager, Doug Urbanski is an amazing guy. Um, brought me into paradigm after um movie that I was going to direct criminal empire uh, had fallen apart because of the financing a million dollars into you know into prep spent uh in New Orleans and you know basically with the movie ready to be shot with Gary Oldman right before Tinker Taylor I mean it was just the timing was amazing and Doug after that fell apart took me over to paradigm and I ended up there for a while and you know it didn't work out and I realized, you know, it's kind of like any relationship. It's better to realize, and I'm even talking about like the chicks or whatever, it's better to realize what it is you don't want than what you want. Because what you want, you can idealize into like, oh, it's great. I want this perfect girl who, you know, makes a living, but isn't this. and that. Yeah, but you're not really probably going to find that. But if you can figure out what you don't want, what is unacceptable, and, you know, what is not going to work for you, you'll be able to really find the right, mix. And after Paradigm, I thought, you know what, I'm not ever going to have another agent. I just, I don't need them. I'm not looking to staff. I have enough relationships in town. I can get in with my manager anywhere I want to be. I met, you know, I, I was working on The Crow and Kevin Misher uh, was my producer, who was a fucking amazing producer. Um, one of the best I've worked with. He said after we, you know, finished up on the uh, previous draft of The Crow and everybody was happy and I said, you know, look, uh, I don't know, maybe should I have an agent because I want you to meet my friend Rich Green at Resolution. And he used to be at CA. I met Rich, and Rich just got my particular brand of crazy. <laughs> and, you know, and Rich, what, what Rich did and does for me on a daily basis, and he's amazing in so many facets. And he's also, for me, it's great. I like source material. I like, you know, optioning books. I like, and he's very literary. You know, he handles a lot of authors like David Morrell, so on and so forth. And, he's great in that regard. He's great in many regards, but the biggest thing for me is he figured out what no one else did, which was what I need is someone to eliminate all the white noise. I'm just too busy to deal with the white noise in between the work that I have to get done. And Rich steps in with his assistant, Will, and they literally remove all white noise. So my bandwidth just gets larger and I'm able to like hole up and focus on my work and get the writing done. So, since you've jumped around to different agencies and finally found one that, again, gets you, assuming an agent, you know, sort of to distill it down, assuming um, a newer writer has a, a few different reps, few different managers maybe interested in repping them, other than 
I guess that sort of amorphous, they get you or you get them kind of thing. Are there other things uh, that screenwriters should be looking for either to avoid or looking for, like, I should sh make sure my manager agent does this or something? Um, is there anything in specific that you have advice-wise that you could talk about? Well, I mean, you know, I think that comes back to figuring out what your brand is as a writer. You know, are you a writer that wants to staff? you know, and just go out and get on a TV show and work your way up the ranks, which is great. And you can make a lot of money and, and it's a great way to go about having a career. It's not my career. You know, are you a creator? Do you create worlds? You know, are you a developing writer? Do you want to option books? You know, and is packaging things a part of what you want? Do you want agents and managers who can reach out or have a talent pool, you know, that you can meet with actors? Like I love including actors in, in things that I do. You know, even if it's telling a show, like I saw the show with Dave Navarro uh, to, to FX. You know, we, Gavin and I sold the show to CBS with Minnie Driver attached already, so she was a part of the development process. These are things, you know, that I like. So, you know, Resolution has a talent pool, but, and Rich has got tons of connections with that, so does George. They also are very good with optioning properties. And, and when I wanted to option the Harriet Tubman book uh, from uh, Kate Larson, uh, they stepped in and, and managed to help me do that. And, you know, now looks like, you know, we have Viola Davis to play Harriet Tubman and we'll possibly set it up at DreamWorks, cool. you know, a year and a half later. It's, it's you know, and, and not for me to write. That's for me to produce. So you have to say, do you want to, you know, be working towards being a writer-producer? And I'm not talking in TV. I'm saying in general, because writers, if you get to that certain rank, you're already a producer, you know, per se. But, do you want to be a producer as well as be a writer? And that means optioning material. So do you want to find an agent who's got uh, a stable of authors, uh, you know, or that handles, you know, this comic book? Like, you know, CAA handles like so many gamers, for example, like, you know, creators of games, you know, and, and so if you want to get it to that world, that might be an aspect that you have a gaming division. What's your social network? You know, what's your division with Amazon and the content they're doing or YouTube channels? If that's something you want to do, you really have to hone in and visualize what it is you want to do with your career to, to know what is going to best serve you in your representation. Right. Now, I want to talk a little bit about your latest project, The Crow. What goes mm -hmm. into doing a big budget reboot of a cult classic like The Crow? Are there any special challenges? Uh, do you have to take like the fan base? Because obviously it comes from a comic book and a, a hit movie. Uh, do you have to take the fan base in mind and how true to the material do you have to stay? That kind of stuff. Well, I think the first rule is don't read the internet. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the first, that's the first you know, thing. And, and Misha told me that early on. You know, stop reading the internet. Get off the fucking internet. <laughs> and, you know, it really is true. You have to, you know, that being said, you know, the fan base is incredibly crucial and important. And, you know, I had always felt in, in coming on to it that I wanted to take a more purist approach to Obar's graphic novel because there's so much beauty in it and so much tragedy. And in finding out more about Obar and what prompted him to write The Crow and the death of his fiancée, Shelley, and, and how she died from a drunk driver and then how The Crow was formed and how James grew up in an orphanage, you start to realize where, you know, Eric Draven comes from. And then you start to say, okay, well, now how do I approach this so I can stay in a purist realm and still give the studio what they want? And that's, I think, another mistake that I see and, and that I have made, and I see a lot of writers make, and, and, and something that I've really 
worked on and found to be uh, amazing in, in getting things pushed forward is, and look, if you see Zalian or Aaron Sorkin, you could go right in a vacuum, you know, or David Kep, you know, or maybe even like Jed Butterworth. But, but beyond, you know, seven or eight people, you really are not going to create something amazing that has all the mandates of the studio uh, in a vacuum. So the first thing I'm saying, writers so often, and myself included, have a tendency to be like, oh, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to bring you back something genius. Well, you, you, you might, but probably not for a studio. And what you do have is great executives and ideally a great producer, like I had Misher. And the second I met with like Robbie Brenner and Kevin Misher, I said, all right, Kevin, uh, you're going to be reading every page of this. And Kevin's talking to Robbie and he's letting Robbie. So I have a, a complete sort of belt line in, from the studio's mandates to Kevin's story editing to what I'm writing. So I'm not wasting time going down paths that I know just aren't going to work. You know, I'm not saying, okay, well, let's make this indie because I would get called on it immediately. Now this is too indie. This has to be, you have to think bigger. You have to think a, a broader scope and you start to challenge your ideas. And then someone says, well, we have to figure out how to make this a franchise. And then that stops you in your tracks. And I go back to my base, which is always my base, which is Greek mythology. And I go to Orpheus and I say, okay, that's an interesting myth to me about a guy who goes down and makes a deal with the devil to get his true love back. Because it's about true love and it's about sacrifice and it's about family. And I say, okay, well, maybe if I can take the shell of that and then I run it by Kevin and we talk about it and it's like, that works because then anyone could come back. Anyone could make this deal. So we have a way. And plus it's a sacrifice of your own good soul. So the woman that died can come back, you know, so, so there are a lot of elements that go into that. And all of those things together are what kind of push towards saying, great. Now we can get someone like, you know, Luke Evans to come in and Javier loved it. And we were able to say, okay, great. Now, then it's out of your hands. And that's the other thing you got to realize, you know, it's out of your hands at that point. Even if you're all services on it, you know, and you're going to be doing all the production rewrites, it's still, whether it gets made, whether it doesn't, you know, the difference between, you know, a movie that gets made probably looks like 53% it's going to get made, which in studio terms is great. <laughs> you know, but it doesn't mean it's going to get made. As people are like, oh, the crow's getting, and now I, is the crow getting made? Yeah, it's, there's a lot of money sunk into that movie. It's getting made. But that's all I can tell you. You know, it's like you gotta you gotta uninvolve yourself in that aftermath, mm-hmm. and then get ready for the next thing. Yeah, well, you should already be on the next thing. Yeah, and I know you've done some video game work, and we do have some uh, listeners and, and readers who are interested in video game writing, and that's sort of an amorphous field where, unlike screenwriting uh, or becoming an author the path is so sort of circuitous. A lot of people come from many different fields and, and their ends are always different. How did you get started or how did you get work in the video game field? How did you become involved in video games? Well, um, you know, in working on Entourage and, and again, as I, I think I spoke about earlier, you know, Doug and, and Lev gave me a, a very wide berth in, in what I was able to be involved in in the production elements of the show one of the things was when we came up with the idea for the fight night episode where turtle is going to compete in this, you know, fight night EA sports video game tournament to win money. Cause he thinks Vince is going broke. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I had the privilege of working with uh, this guy, Scott Gamel at EA at the time. And uh, Doug and I worked with them very, very closely. And Doug handed me the reins on it, uh, you know, because, again, he's running a show. Uh, so I was very fortunate that I was like, all right, well, just deal with Scott. And, you know, we need them to write code for this. And we were getting them to write code for the exact direction we needed the characters in Fight Night to do and so on and so forth. And, you know, that being said, it was, you know, a relationship that I really developed and nurtured because I loved gaming so much. And uh, with Scott, we talk about a lot of things. We got, and then the show ended up being, you know, that actual episode was a huge success for EA. Our audience loved it. And I nurtured that relationship. And then Scott came to me after I was, uh, you know, out of entourage and he said, you know, Hey, we're working on this. You know, it was the first game that EA had developed. But again, I kept in touch with Scott all the time. You know, it was a constant, and he said, well, this is the first game we're developing in-house for like, in like 20 years, we haven't done this and it's called Dead Space. And, you know, do you think you could come out and consult with the people that we have working on the game? And I said, you know, fuck yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like how the hell, when? And, you know, that was kind of, you know, an entree into it. And then you have that under your belt and then Sega comes around and they say, well, we have an opening for someone to write the story for Full Auto 2. I'm like, oh, I fucking love Full Auto 1. And you get on the phone with all the execs and you talk about your idea and how it's somewhat Asimov, uh, you know, Isaac Asimov based and, you know, robots and computers being God. And they're like, okay, so how do we put that into the story? I'm like, this is how. And we reveal this at the end. And then next thing you know, you're writing what they call buckets. Uh, and you, you're making some really good money. And and ultimately, it gives you a different kind of street cred, too, which mm-hmm. is pretty awesome. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So we could probably talk on and on about Entourage and <laughs> video games. Um, what's your favorite uh, yeah, video game? Yeah, sure. Just out of curiosity. Uh, right now, I'm pissed that I didn't get... Um, the job because I wanted to, I was tracking Splinter Cell my, since the day it came out oh. and I got to meet with uh, Jean over at um, Ubisoft and I was down to like me and another writer and I guess they gave it to the other writer. Um, uh, but you know, so I'm a little bitter, <laughs> but I have to say still they're, they're Ubisoft games. They're, they're Splinter Cell and uh, you know, uh, Assassin's Creed. And then um, um, I'll, I'll go to Activision and I'll do um, uh, Call of Duty. Okay. You know, I'll give them props, but yeah. you know, ultimately, I'm I'm an Ubisoft guy. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, we interviewed uh, Darby McDevitt, who was the lead writer on uh, Assassin's Creed Black Flag. He was terrific. So, I mean, that guy is—they're all. I mean, just the mythology they've created from the Adam's apple, you know, the, the apple from the Garden of Eden, and the—I mean, it's—it's—it's it's, it's so fucking fantastic. I can't. I, I think Fassbender's doing the movie. I cannot wait. To see that movie, yeah. I can know, and I hope that I hope those guys are writing it or at least having some input because the stuff that they've put together in this series of games to me is ingenious. Yeah, agreed. So we've reached a point where we have a section called Rapid Fire, which are just a few <laughs> random questions that really uh, I'm just going to throw them at you. Um, would you rather have a beer with Philly's pitcher Cliff Lee, ACDC bassist Cliff Williams? Or reggae singer Jimmy Cliff? ACDC basis. Nice. Cliff um, Without a doubt. <laughs> you were on the favorite ACDC song, actually? My favorite ACDC yeah. song? Yeah. Um, it's crossed between Dirty Deeds, yeah. Highway to Hell, and uh, Rock and Roll and Noise Pollution. Cool. Um, you were on the original Beverly Hills 90210, which was rebooted in 2008. 
What other yes. show that you've been on do you think would make the best modern reboot? Seventh Heaven, Blossom, or <laughs> Baywatch Nights, and why? <laughs> uh, is there a, is there like a B? <laughs> None of the above? No? I, I mean, I swear to God, my instinct is towards Pacific Blue. Nice. <laughs> I did that show, too. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, you know, the show about bike tops in Santa Monica. I think they're even talking about it on, uh, uh, what is it, Tom Capano's The Californication Show? Right. I think that's a, you know, Santa Monica cop and they're on bike patrol. I say Pacific Blue. I, see, I didn't I'm want not to make going with easy. one of yours. I didn't want to make it too easy <laughs> for you, so I threw Well, if I had to pick one, well, wait. Okay, so in all fairness, out of what you gave me, I would say Seventh Heaven, because faith-based shows are always going to be welcomed. Right. Who would win in a game of beer pong? You, Doug Ellen, or Jonathan Silverman? <laughs> not me. So I, I'd have to say that the finals would be between Doug and Johnny. And, oh, man, I, I might go with Johnny. <laughs> you, I think you were in a lose-lose situation no matter who you picked there. Cause, uh, I was. Yeah. I was. Thanks for that. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> Um, and do you, have any, do you have any last thoughts or advice for screenwriters out there? Find something else to do. Nice. Nice. Anything so now, else? I mean, like, this, is, this is torturous. No, I, look, you know, I think advice to screenwriters, I think ultimately, I think it's really what I said earlier, is figure out, really visualize what your career is. You know, what you see yourself doing, the types of movies or shows you want to write, and really understand why you're the one to write them. And when you figure that out, you'll write really, really great stuff. But you really do have to figure that out. What's your brand? What's your goals in this business? Not just, hey, I want to be a writer. And I think that is something where you see a lot of people going, you know, oh, I have this great idea. I want to be a writer. I have this, you know, thing that I want to do. I want to be a writer. Well, you know, this is an internal discipline that causes you to live in your mind day in and day out with characters that become real. And then you have to go out in the real world and live real life while these characters are in your head talking to you at the same time. So really figure out what it is you have to say and why and the types of things you want to make or see get made. And then you'll be able to figure out what kind of writer you are. And once you do that, writing will not be as hard. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that talking about brand, talking about uh, distilling it down to essentially what it is you want to do. Cause again, you're right. So many people want to, they have so many ideas. They want to write. I have a TV idea. That's about sitcom. And then I have a drama story and I have an action. I, and it really does come down to specificity to master one thing before trying 20 different things. And not to say that those ideas, I mean, once you're Aaron Sorkin or whoever, and you've established sure. that brand or that identity, you're JJ Abrams or whoever, they can branch out, they can do whatever they want. But I, like you said, when you are establishing that brand, you really need to sort of distill it down into what it is you want to do rather than diverge, you know, rather than sort of disperse your energy over so many different things. Because um, Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, you brought up J.J. Abrams. He doesn't even really expand. I mean, he does so many things. But if you look at the things he does, the only expansion, and again, this is, you know, said with the most humility and respect for the guy. It's the idea of, like, Felicity 
going from Felicity to Alias was probably the biggest expansion. But once you hit Alias in that high concept world, espionage, you know, high tech sci-fi uh, idea rooted in family. Again, rooted in family. It wasn't that hard for him, you know, to make the jump to what you look at what he does now, whether it's Fringe or, you know, or Person of Interest or, you know, Star Trek. Or There's a reason that J.J. Abrams was handed Star Wars by George Lucas. You know, he built that brand over two decades that mm-hmm. said, I am the guy to make Star Wars. And I think if you go back and you look at all of his shows and all of his films, you see a common thread. Right. And, and that, that, again, that goes back to my advice for a writer. Like, figure out what your common thread is. Yeah. And, you know, speaking about that common thread, it doesn't necessarily need to be a specific genre, although that does help, especially early on, you know, when executives have mm-hmm. lists of horror writers or action writers, it helps to be identifiable with a specific genre. But I think you're talking about specific again, that thread that ties them all together, because whether it's Alias uh, or Felicity or Star Wars or, you know, Star whatever. Trek, family. Right. It, it comes back to family, though, too. Right. For JJ. Right. Which ties it all together. Lost as well. Lost yeah. as a family on that island, you know, and their families back home. You know, these are all things that tie in. So same with me. My themes are very family-based and secrets and betrayal and family you choose versus family you're given. You know, these are things that are in every single thing I write. Right. That's, again, terrific advice. And uh, not that I'm trying to discourage anybody from trying television and film and, and whatever, but again, try to find that, that through line, that, that specialty that you can be known for instead of trying 20 different genres, 20 different story types, um, and spreading yourself thin and not being, again, the master of, you know, being the jack of all trades, master of none, I think is a disservice to a starting writer, especially. But like you said, I mean, even J.J. Abrams has his wheelhouse, which, again, yep. he's known for. Um, yeah, and it's not to say that he can't go do anything. Sure, absolutely. He's a very smart guy. There's a reason he was given a $55 million overall deal. You know, I mean, like I said, a reason he was given Star Wars and Tom Cruise loves working with him and he does all the Mission Impossibles. Right. You know, he's, there's something in all those movies that has an element of what he does. Mm-hmm. His voice. Yep, his voice. Yeah. And, you know, some sci-fi, some high-tech, some espionage. Right. Really great talking to you today, Cliff. I appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, it's been a blast. Thank you. The time went very quickly. Yeah. And also, uh, thanks to uh, George Heller of Apostle for uh, yes, connecting Thank us. you, George. Um, thank and, you, George. <laughs> and you should definitely follow Cliff on Twitter, at Cliff Dorfman, if you haven't already. Although he has, I don't know, 54,000, 55,000 followers. Um, so I, a lot I, of you I, probably... I still don't believe it. <laughs> um, and follow him on Instagram, at Cliff Dorfman 88. Although I'm curious to see who the other 87 Cliff Dorfmans are on Instagram. <laughs> um, I'll have to investigate that. Thanks for that. Uh, and if you have questions <laughs> about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thanks for listening.